Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to another episode of Deconstructive Criticism, or as we call this podcast in Swedish, Deconstructive Critique. I am Aron Flam. Today we're talking to British author, academic and education editor for Spiked Online, Dr. Joanna Williams. Primarily about her new book, Women vs. Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. In it, she challenges the victim cult within modern-day feminism. I read the book before our talk, and it is as wonderful a read as Joanna was to talk to. Now, please enjoy Dr. Joanna Williams. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, Joanna Williams. You are the education editor of Spiked Online in England. And you're here in Sweden. Why? I'm taking part in a debate this evening. It's a debate on safe spaces at Bajit. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yes, I, I think Bajit it would be the Hebrew pronunciation. It just means home or house, I think. Yes, and safe spaces. So this is an idea which I didn't actually realize had traveled to Sweden yet, but it's an idea that's taken off at university campuses in the US and in the UK. This idea that you need a space where controversial ideas are outlawed so you can protect students who are considered particularly vulnerable. So most recently in the UK, it's been used to outlaw very famous feminists from a previous era, people like Jermaine Greer, who hold the very peculiar belief or belief that's considered to be very peculiar nowadays, that to be a woman means something biological, that there is a connection between your chromosomes and your genitalia, being female and being a woman. And feminists who hold this completely outrageous view have been um, no platformed from the university safe space so as not to offend transgender students. Yeah, I, I read about her in, in your book, Women versus Feminism, which seems quite a combative title for a book. I think. Uh, and uh, apparently the problem with her, according to you, was that she was a transphobic. I think uh, two things to say there. I mean, the word phobic gets thrown around all over the place these days. You know, you, essentially it boils down to disagreeing with, uh, to me, phobia is a deep-rooted fear where you say so if you have agoraphobia, you're so scared of the outside world, you can't leave your house. Nowadays, anybody who disagrees with anybody is labeled phobic. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Jemaine Greer certainly has no deep-rooted phobia of transgender people. She just happens to believe that actually there's no such thing as gender. There's a biological concept of sex. And that's enough to have people, somebody labeled transphobic. And where do you yourself start? on this because uh, in the first chapter on schooling I mean it's clear you don't put that much stock in biological explanations uh, 
Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I certainly do believe that there is a connection between uh, that that sex is important sex is intrinsically connected to whether you are male or female that that is a biological fact as i say it's linked to chromosomes it's linked to genitalia these are not social constructions these are biological facts so i think being a woman being a man is a biological fact but what it means to express yourself how that plays out within society is influenced by more than just your genes. So I don't think, for example, if you are born a woman, then that means that you are less intelligent than a man, that you are more likely to enjoy flower arranging and wearing pink dresses just because of your chromosomes and your genitalia. So I do think that society plays a part. The problem is, uh, you know, we have people who argue nowadays that it's all to do with biology or, uh, you know, that biology determines whether you have a maternal instinct and it's all to do with biology, these differences, deep-rooted differences between men and women. Or we have people who go the other extreme and argue that, you know, this is nothing other than a feeling that we have. It's all to do with society and all the differences that exist nowadays between men and women are simply because boys are given train sets to play with when they're children and girls are given dolls to play with when they're children. And you know what? We can never, ever know because babies are born into a society that exists already. We don't carry out these experiments where we take people and we separate them off in out of society to see how they grow up purely as a product of their biology. I think we're all an intri- a, an, a mix of biology and society. And, and the problem is with both of the arguments, it's all biology and it's all society. What's, what's completely forgotten from both of those arguments is individual agency. We as people interact with our biology. It doesn't just happen to us. We happen to it as well. And we don't just happen. Society doesn't just happen to us. We happen to society. We influence and change society too. So, I think individual agency is the thing that's forgotten nowadays and is actually a really important connection to how we shape our biology and the society that we live in. I agree completely. I was a bit worried when I started reading your book because you start off by quoting Cordelia Fine and I didn't like testosterone Rex that much because I find it anti-scientific. But then I realized, is this why you wrote the book? Because you want to... uh, make people realize that it's not either or it's a combination of I think there's lots of reasons why I wrote the book but I think that it's a combination of is is a really important argument to make because I think just to go back to what I was saying the biology is all and the society is all arguments are very deterministic you know they kind of suggest that we just play out a predetermined path in society and I think I instinctively react against any argument that seems to suggest that we're just a product of our circumstances or we're just a product of our biology so I, I did think that that was a very important point to make. But that wasn't really the reason why I wrote the book. Uh, What motivated me to write the book was much more, um, I wanted to challenge the direction that feminism was heading in, which um, I think portrays women as victims nowadays. I think there's a real contradiction today, where by every single statistical and material measure you can point to, women are doing better than ever before. And in many instances are actually doing better than men. So you've got women doing better at school, in employment, earning more, historically doing better than ever before. And yet you've got this brand of feminism that's saying, no, women are victims. And it has to try harder and harder to justify that argument by looking into ever more obscure terrain to justify this claim that women are victims nowadays. And I really, my main point in the book is to challenge that argument that that women are still nowadays, 2018, disadvantaged, oppressed, this kind of put upon a half of a population. Um, I think that's such a backward argument. And and most importantly of all, I think it does women no favours whatsoever to be constantly bombarded with that message. Yeah, no, um, I, I actually, I, re- I read this today and I, I found it uh, quite entertaining. And I wanted to ask you a few questions about it because 
you you start off with school and you talk about schooling and here women or girls to be quite fair are pulling away from boys at a quite astonishing rate and this is about england primarily mm -hmm. so what's happened in england well in england absolutely the same and in america too the same our girls are doing so much better than boys and i think people suddenly in the uk now are quite familiar with that argument that girls are doing better at school than boys but i think um two things that people don't realize that are both important um i think firstly how long this has been going on for so this isn't actually a new phenomena in the uk um how long in the uk oh well over a quarter of a century so almost three decades then absolutely so women began to outnumber men going to university in 1992 and uh, women have been outnumbering men in higher education every single year since 1992 so that's the first thing that i think is is underplayed nowadays the second thing that i think is really important that people seem to conveniently forget is that women are not just doing better in a few subjects in kind of traditionally female subjects um i don't know um english literature literature for example nursing nursing art this kind of thing um women are doing better in every subject you know i mean perhaps we could even point math to, and physics well we could those are the the two exceptions that we could point to but even then only at higher levels of maths and physics so across the sciences really certainly if you look at the science subjects that lead most directly into employment and into well-paid employment so medicine veterinary science are completely dominated by I, women. I thought veterinary science, you mentioned almost 70%. Absolutely, yeah. And in some parts of America, 80%. 80%. Um, so, so women are doing phenomenally well at science, in science subjects. And women are doing better across all levels as well. It's not just in primary school or secondary school. Uh, more doctorates are now being awarded to women. You know, so, But aren't they all in gender studies? <laughs> you know, a lot of women do opt for gender studies. And they are, well, not a lot, but, but more women than men opt for gender studies. And the thing that really surprises me is why all these women opt for gender studies and then complain about the gender pay gap, because it's absolutely not true that women are kept in this, girls are kept in this bubble where they don't know that if you want to have a well-paying job, uh, you go towards science, engineering, maths, law, even medicine. Well, they think it's deeply unfair that what is viewed as traditional female occupations are undervalued. That's the argument in Sweden at least. Well this is the argument that's used in the UK as well and I think that would perhaps have some historical basis you know lots of these arguments do have uh, an historical basis but what's forgotten is how much society has moved on nowadays so if you go back to the 1950s the 1960s and this is how far back you need to go uh, you go back to that time in the UK there were legal restrictions and bars and barriers uh, on the types of occupations that men and women could do. You had a, a workplace that was segregated according to sex and this was something which was not challenged, not legally challenged. Nowadays, you know, there are no rules. So we've had a lot of reporting in the UK just in the past week about the gender pay gap. There's now a law in the UK that companies employing more than 250 people have to report an average gender pay gap statistic. So it's. So what's the problem with this then? Because I, I, I follow, I, I yeah. started following you on Twitter today actually, but Natalie has informed me before she was the one who connected us. So I've seen that you have been partaking in uh, a bit of tweet fencing i suppose you could call it <laughs> so there are so many problems with this gender pay gap reporting uh, but perhaps most obvious is that the statistics just have no relationship to reality whatsoever so to give you like the most outrageous headline companies like ryanair and easyjet they are reporting statistics i think the uh, ryanair gender pay gap is something like 72 percent 
uh, which is shocking and outrageous. And if you were a young woman growing up today and you heard that the, the gender pay gap in this company was 72%, you would think it's so terrible being a woman. But what this means when you break the statistic down is that pilots are really, this is really shocking, pilots are paid more than cabin crew staff. Really? And more pilots are men and more cabin crew are women. But among the pilots and among the cabin crew, there is no gender pay gap. So if you're a man or a woman and you're a pilot, you get a high salary. If you're a man or a woman and you're a cabin crew staff, then you get a lower salary. Now, we could sit here and argue the toss. You know, is that fair? Is that unfair? Are pilots overpaid? Are cabin crew staff underpaid? But the fact is that those differences exist. Now, what the way the discussion's headed in the UK is people then say, well, this is so unfair because what, what this is showing is that fewer women become pilots. Now, we could like be really shocked and outraged about this if there were rules and restrictions and regulations in place that were preventing women from becoming pilots. But there are not. But aren't there like, uh, you know, uh, a special jargon in pilot school i imagine i have never gone to pilot school and that jargon is so sexist and chauvinist that it excludes women from even trying well this is i mean that, that argument i've not heard before i don't believe that there is i'm sure women are quite capable of reading that's actually an argument that is used here well the <laughs> argument that's used mainly in the uk is this argument which can be summed up in a few words which there are so many things wrong with this argument, but it, I think the beauty, the reason why people like it is because it, it can be summed up so simply. In the UK, people say you have to see it to be it. So if you don't see female pilots, you don't think as a young woman that you can be a, a female pilot. So we have to see women in all of these kind of positions or young women don't think that they can be it. So that that's the argument that we don't see enough women pilots. So young girls growing up don't think that this is a suitable job for them. But I mean, of course, that is a ridiculous argument because if that really was the case, you have to see it to be it. And that applies to skin colour and gender and sexuality. You know, we would never, ever have had a first female prime minister, a first female newsreader, a first woman anything, or a first man anything for that matter. <laughs> I mean, this argument is is completely bonkers. It also suggests that you can only um, be something if you see somebody exactly of the same skin colour and gender as you. I couldn't see a man doing something and think, hey, that looks like a really exciting thing to do. That's what I would like to do, because if he doesn't have the same genitalia as me, then my mind explodes and I think I can't possibly do this. I, it's, it's just nuts. But, but this is where we return to the arguments that we were talking about a few moments ago, um, where we're, we're told that this all comes down to socialization. And actually, the problems start when uh, boys are put into blue baby grows when they're first born and girls are put into pink clothes, because that color clothing kind of imbues them with different ideas about what's possible in their later life. Again, rubbish i mean just absolute rubbish so why do you think that girls are outperforming boys in school then um well i think the i think the education system has changed i think girls are bright and capable and um i think girls were probably underperforming in the past and some of this is just girls catching up to to do as well as they always were capable of but they're not catching up they're they're surpassing absolutely surpassing um but i think there probably is some truth it's a cliche but i think there probably is some truth in the idea that our girls mature a little more quickly than boys so if you give a standardized test to all 10 year olds or all 16 year olds i think there's probably a maturity advantage there where girls are taking it a little bit more seriously I think the, certainly in the UK, I, I can't speak to Sweden to, in this respect, but certainly in the UK, I think the nature of the education system changed quite considerably um, 25, 30 years ago with a move away from what's known in the UK as a kind of, a kind of sudden death competitive exam focused culture to become more about um, coursework and um a group work and, and rather than gambling everything on a sudden death exam, which 
is supposed to appeal more to a, a kind of boy so mentality. in the old school system in England, class participation wasn't as highly valued as it is today. Exactly, it was how well you did on the final exam that yeah. actually determined what grade you got. Definitely, definitely, and it's more than that. It's it's to do with. Um, actually how the exact how you are assessed so we went over in the uk well, there's a slight pushback against this now but we went over in the uk to something called coursework so this is going back a long time now but suddenly when i was 16 i was one of the first generation to come through this new exam system and so my english english language english literature when i was 16 i didn't do one exam there were no exams whatsoever it was a hundred percent coursework so it, I wrote essays basically throughout the two years that I was studying for my GCSE exams you take when you're 16 and didn't do one exam. And I mean, this might be true, this might not be true, but but certainly some people argue that this favours the way that girls approach their schoolwork. I think there are also uh, differences that... Um, become quite quite uh, the way that that people's values and behavior is rewarded so one anecdote that I use in the book which I think is quite revealing is my daughter coming home from one of her first day I think her first day or her first week at school with a big star a big gold star sticker and I asked her what's your sticker for and she said to me that this was for and I quote sitting nicely and and my heart sank with that because it's this idea of that conformity, being quiet, being good is being rewarded. And I do think that appeals to girls. And I think girls are good at being good or, or lots of girls are good at Do you think it's because good. of biology or expectations? Again, you know, I would say probably a mixture of both. And I know that's sitting on the fence and think terribly, but I think... No, girls, I think that's actually true. Well, I think girls probably do learn from a very, very young age that they are expected to be nice. And I think boys learn at a young age still that they probably can get away with being a bit rough and tough and get approval, some approval for that. Because um, I read the latest article you you wrote, which was about Molly Ringwald, a, yes. a childhood favorite yeah. of mine. Me too. Yes, because uh, she had gone... Uh, She's gone out now and said that uh, Breakfast Club should be, uh, well, censored, I suppose. She's she's suddenly reassessing her role in all the films that she made with John Hughes, which I think is absolutely tragic and completely shameful because John Hughes, the director, writer, producer, he made her career. Yeah. You know, he That was all of her career, actually. All of her career. You know, we would not be sitting here today talking about Molly Ringwald if it was not for John Hughes. And those films spoke to a generation because they gave us, for the first time, I think, a real glimpse of what it was like to be a teenager. And nowadays, you know, you can go to any bookshop and there are hundreds of, uh, I think there's even a name for it, which I can't remember now, but, but it's Tween. kind of, yeah, kind of special fiction for young adults, yeah. I think is the label, you, you kind of young adult films, young adult fiction. But back in the mid 1980s, you didn't have that. And to certainly not to such an extent. And here was a very realistic, portrayal of teenagers on film and teenagers talk about sex and they talk about sex in very crude ways that adults do not and that was what was so brilliant or one of the things that was so brilliant about the films this was teenage life in the raw and the idea that we go back now and we revisit that and we disinfect it disinfect it and we sanitize it makes it not what it was it's no longer a film that speaks to the reality of being a teenager and if and if and even if uh, what you call fourth wave feminism was right like they're not learning from history by sort of just censoring it absolutely absolutely so. i mean to me this is just the most bizarre criticism i mean watching the film again it is so tame <laughs> you know there is no sex in that film very little violence you know this is compared to the things my teenage children watch nowadays this is as tame as it gets and the idea that we need to go back and censor these films just blows my mind it's just completely crazy yes i i think i've i've lost um my thread a bit here i'm sorry about mm -hmm. that 
But to um, walk back a bit to um, the arguments you have that feminism has sort of, in a sense, won, uh, because that's what you're arguing mm-hmm. for here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go through the workplace where you say that women actually don't face that much discrimination. How is that possible, considering, you know, the onslaught of media that tells me that women really face discrimination in the workplace? Well, I I would just... Where is this discrimination? What form does this discrimination take? The gender pay gap is one. Yeah, but that's rubbish. There is no gender pay gap. Um, Women and men doing the same jobs for the same length of time with the same experience. They get paid exactly the same. In the UK, it would be against the law to pay men and women differently for doing the same work. And that's been the case, again, well over 30 years now. This would be completely illegal. And women could take the, their employers to court. So, you know, it, it, not only is it illegal, but also, I mean, just rationally, economically, it doesn't make any sense because if you were the boss and you could get a woman to do the same job as a man so much more cheaply, you know, why would anybody ever employ a man? I mean, it just wouldn't make sense. Why would you employ a man if you could get this, the, a woman to do the same work? Nepotism. <laughs> Yeah, I don't buy it. Patriarchy? No, no. I think all of this is is not true, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, the other thing in the workplace nowadays is there are so many um, HR policies, human resources policies, uh, statements about equal opportunities and the importance of inclusivity. You know, you, you just do not. I mean, I think there are issues. And I do talk in the book about uh, women have children is the bottom line. And when women have children, then uh, not all, but some women do choose, and I do use that word quite deliberately, choose to um, take time out to have to to be at home and to look after their children. Um, A couple of things with that. I mean, if you look at the statistics, women who have children either earlier or later than the kind of typical in the UK, it's around 30, 32 now when women tend to have their first child. But women who have their children either earlier or later uh, tend to have no gender pay gap. Women who return to work very quickly after having had the baby don't take extended periods of time away from work, tend to have no gender pay gap with men. Uh, so it tends to be people who have babies at the same time as they hit the peak of their career and decide to take four or five years off having more than one child consecutively. Uh, you know, but but then why would we why would we be surprised about this if you take five years off? Because you can have both a career and a family. Well, you can. Of, and there of course, you can. And and the argument the feminists in Sweden are making is that they shouldn't have to choose. I, I, you know, I think you you can absolutely have both a career and children. I have three children. I've enjoyed a very successful career. But I think what you can't do is be in two places at the same time. That is true. You left your daughter in the shopping mall <laughs> to come here and get do this interview. That's absolutely true. Um, no you, helicopter parenting here. <laughs> But this is where, you know, and I think this is the thing that feminists have problems with. Ultimately, you have to make compromises. You have to make choices. You know, I could be sitting here with you now or I could be in the shopping center with my daughter. You know, and I've had to, I've made a choice and I far more you made pleasurable. The right choice. I definitely the right made the right <laughs> choice. Uh, but the same with your career. You know, I you could be breaking through the glass ceiling and you can be in work from early in the morning until late in the evening. Or you can be there to see your child off to school and pick them up from school again at the end of the day. You know, and that is a choice that people make. And um, we don't like to think of this as a choice. It's far easier, I think, to tell yourself a story. You know, this wasn't my choice. I just this was the only option available to me because then you are abdicating responsibility for the choices that you have made. You know, I think perhaps what's important to add here is that we might not like the circumstances in which we make these choices. I could, you know, if I had a few extra hundred thousand pounds a year, I could have a private jet, I could have a helicopter, you know, I'd have different choices to be able to make. So we might not like the circumstances in which we make choices, but to pretend 
that a lie, essentially, that we don't have choices to make at all, is very dishonest, I think. And it doesn't do, again, doesn't do women any favours, because, you know, then it's it's suggesting that, that again, we're, we're just kind of products of our circumstances. You know, we, we have to be at home because there's no choice, or we have to be in work because there's no choice. And, that, and that's a lie. Yeah. Have you heard of the gender paradox? Uh, no. Because uh, what we've found... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In Sweden is that when you free uh, society up so anyone can do whatever they want, suddenly you have a lot of men applying for engineering school and a lot of women applying for nursing school. So these become male and female dominated uh, occupations in, 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 in reality, in effect. So what do you say to that? I think this is true. I mean, there are lots of different paradoxes like this at play. So... I mean, one thing, I think, again, to return to history, I think I can't stress enough how much things were bad for women in the past, you know, and how much things have changed. So I was born in 1973. Uh, my mother says that after I was born, she would have liked to have gone to art college to, to study. Uh, but there, there just weren't nurseries for young children available at that time. So she very genuinely did not have a choice because there were no relatives who lived nearby. There, there were not nurseries. Nowadays, there are lots of nurseries, lots of childcare um, facilities available in the UK. We can argue they're expensive, and they are expensive. Um, but most people who want childcare are able to access childcare provision. Obviously, what's happened, though, since the 1970s, when you've had this explosion of childcare provision, is that more and more women are now employed working in nurseries. <laughs> And the women are not looking after children in their own home for free, but they are then going out to work, working in nurseries, looking after other people's children and being paid for it. So we look at a, a different type of kind of gender stratification of the workplace. Um, when yeah, I noticed because you wrote about Sweden briefly in that chapter, I think, where you said that basically what Sweden did was just started starting to pay women for housework they just institutionalized it and made it st state run basically and, th and this is it and you know this is where i think uh, feminism again degrades the choices that women have and i, I think you know, rather than saying women must stay in the home, which is the view that you'd have had, you know, go back not even 100 years ago, but 60, 70 years ago, or women must go out to work, which seems to be one feminist view nowadays. I think actually celebrating the fact that, hey, isn't it great that women, some women, you know, have these choices to make and let's not denigrate the whole fact of having these choices to make is is a really important thing to, to celebrate these choices. I think feminism doesn't do that enough. We don't celebrate the progress women have made. We don't celebrate the choices women can make. We're, we're, feminism now is is so determined to seek out disadvantages that it, it doesn't focus on the gains that have been made. Yeah, you, you have uh, an entire section of the book called Victims uh, or Victors, which in Swedish would be if uh, I, I just think I'd have to explain to the listener that it, basically Victor is not a, a male person. It's just someone who's won something. 
Yes. <laughs> so uh, what is that about? So that's in that chapter of the book, I'm, I'm quite explicitly pointing to this tension between the material gains women have made at work, at school, in terms of their pay, and this perception that dominates in the media um, that women are. So obviously, it's interesting. My book came out um, October the 16th, 17th, something like that last year. And October the 21st, something like that, I, I think, uh, the whole Me Too, Harvey Weinstein scandal exploded onto the scene. And what's interesting about that hashtag, that whole Me Too campaign, is I think it's become another, yet another uh reason why women are to ignore all the victories that they've had in the past, all the successes, and yet again, focus on being victims. You know, we're we're all victims of sexual harassment now. How, how so? How was it in England during Me Too for you? And I won't say as a female, because <laughs> I, I know you would probably take offense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm very good at not taking offense at things. Um, but Well, I think certainly anybody, I spoke out very quickly against the Me Too. I wrote a piece in the Spectator website about two days after it came out, uh, after the Me Too hashtag first took off, basically decrying this as a, a narcissistic bandwagon that women were jumping on to the whole thing of Me Too. It's like, I, you know, I'm not denying for one second that Harvey Weinstein, well, we don't know, it's not being found, he's not been found guilty in any court of law yet uh, but certainly it, it from what we've been told he's done some pretty uh, yucky reprehensible uh, by the sound of things potentially illegal things you know and wouldn't for one second want to condone that but the way we moved from rape to what I would call far more trivial instances so we've had a whole heap of focus in the UK on the heinous crime of knee touching where um, there's a couple of women journalists who took MPs out for dinner. All of this happened over a decade ago and found a hand placed on the knee that they didn't want. And rather than having the guts to say, could you take your hand off my knee or physically removing the hand from the knee, 10 years later, write this up as a newspaper column under the headline of Me Too, Yeah. And suffered this this incredibly traumatic experience. And it just seemed to be kind of forming a club that all women, you know, everybody, I'm sure, I mean, I would have to really struggle. Uh, there's obviously something wrong with me. Uh, but all women, I'm sure if they think long and hard enough, can find something that's happened to them over the past 20, 30 years where they can say, yes, me too. I was sexually harassed. Um, but yeah, if you speak out about this and say, you know, there are a number of problems with this campaign, you very quickly find yourself kind of thrown out of the feminist club. Not that I ever wanted to be part of it. Um, but you know, the, so you can see far more famous people than me, Catherine Deneuve in, in France, for example, people who've challenged the consensus around Me Too, that all women are victims, all men are predators. You know, we need to control men. We need to protect women. Anybody who's spoken out against that has found themselves pretty much vilified. Yeah, you brought up something you seem to call, I, I haven't heard it before, a feminist etiquette? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What does that constitute? Um, so this is, a, I, I guess, a consensus, if you like. Um, and it is this consensus that women are oppressed, you know, that, that as the things that we've talked about already, that women are sexually harassed. But it's more than that, because as a small child, I used to play in, in the schoolyard. And um, unlike what I've been told, the coolest uh, kids in my class were all women. And they had a gang. And uh, they this gang was about policing themselves, policing the girls who weren't in the gang, and policing the boys. But you bring up this point when it comes to feminist etiquette, that feminist etiquette is a lot about regulating other people's behavior, mm -hmm. not your own behavior. Yeah, definitely. So... Um For example, within the university context, something that's talked about a lot nowadays is this idea that the campus is a rape culture. Uh, um, again, it's a completely nonsensical 
discussion. There is no epidemic of rape taking place on British or American university campuses. But this has um, become an orthodoxy. You know, this, this has become considered a, a truth with a capital T. And if you challenge that, then you are, well, there's a new word that's used for it now, which used to be used just in relation to the Holocaust and climate change. You are now called a rape culture denier. And what that means when you attach that label denier is it means that your views are so beyond the pale, they are so off the scale crazy that you are not even worth discussing with. You know, there's no point even debating with you because you are a denier. Uh, You've had that label attached to you. So, you know, to challenge the idea that the university campus is a rape culture, uh, you know, you get this label denier you're somebody who's who's just crazy not worth discussing with but but when it's accepted it has a number of repercussions so it turns women students into victims we've seen various things going on in the uk where um women leaving nightclubs drunk for example are asked well perceived to be drunk or on their own are are sometimes asked you know not by friends i would be all in favor of friends looking out for each other i mean to me that that's a sensible thing to do that people should do uh but by kind of like bouncers would be the word i don't know how that would translate into swedish but but by kind of authority figures safe space safe space marshaled type people um to check up on them are they okay do they know if they're, particularly if they're leaving with a man do they know the man that they're leaving with now to me that sets feminism back three or four decades because to me the whole point of the sexual revolution was that women were perfectly entitled to go and have a one-night stand with a man that they'd never met before if that was what they so chose to do the idea that why would anyone want to have a spontaneous uh, rape done to them <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but that's to see all um, all sex is sex rape. Is rape, heterosexual which, sex. Yeah, which yeah. certainly was a line of feminist argument, and and I think still is a line of feminist argument held by some people. Um, but but really, the idea is that women are not quite capable of making these judgments for themselves. Women need a protective figure to step in and check. And do you know this man? You know, as if you're going to sit down in a nightclub and say, "Well, tell me your life history before I agree to go home." Well, well, the Me Too movement sort of confirmed that, didn't it? The Me Too movement, I think, and this very very interesting to go back to what you're saying about Molly Ringwald and the Breakfast Club. I think. It's really um, put a renewed focus on the concept of consent. So universities in the UK now, uh, students are routinely offered consent classes, which again is something I, I struggle with a lot because I think if a student, I mean, it's, it's directed at men, you know, don't rape and directed at women, kind of protect yourself. Everybody, all men are potential rapists. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, if a young male student doesn't know that raping someone is bad, they shouldn't be at university in the first place. I think because have, should they should have learned about that by that age. Yeah. When do you start university? In 18, England? 19. All right. You know. Yes. But I mean, it, it's bizarre because we don't routinely hold classes telling people not to commit murder. No, I know, which we maybe should start. <laughs> <laughs> but we tend to assume that people have enough of a moral compass yes. that they know that murdering people is wrong. And also probably learned that in kindergarten. But I think you put it quite nicely because you said there was there was a difference between two campaigns that no means no. Yeah. That's one one thing and then yes means yes is something entirely different could you explain the difference between these yeah, two concepts absolutely because no means no assumes that and this was an older campaign yeah, against yeah, rape yeah definitely that that's an older campaign it was certainly a campaign that was taking off when i was at university back in the early 1990s um but it it assumed that women knew their own minds and were able to say yes or no to having sex with someone the yes means yes or affirmative consent as it's known assumes the woman needs to be asked 
which by the man. And it's this formal process of asking, soliciting for consent and and the woman agreeing. Uh Because we have this as a... This is a proposition for a new law in Sweden. Now. Yeah, you, you know yeah, that. All yeah. right. Yeah. So our government is gonna—they're gonna push it through, mm-hmm. no um, matter well, what. I think it will. Same thing will take off in the UK before too long because that's definitely the direction that the Me Too movement is taking us in. Um, I, I think it's great because I find paperwork incredibly sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many things wrong with this. It's completely unrealistic, you know. Uh, particularly when you're young, particularly when you've had a few drinks. And let's face it, if we outlawed having sex after having consumed alcohol, nobody would lose their virginity until they were at we least 25. We <laughs> wouldn't have children. The size of the population on the planet would be hugely reduced. Um, so it's unrealistic. People don't carry on like that. They might practice these things in a classroom, but in the bedroom after having consumed alcohol, in the heat of the moment, people don't rehearse scripts that they've learnt by heart or, or as you say, bring out the paperwork. It's unrealistic. Worse than that, though, it is so demeaning and patronising to women, this idea that you can't have sex, you know, because you might want to, um, that this idea that you need to be asked, that you need to be asked every step of the way. So, I mean, it, it enshrines in law, certainly in the UK, even though we haven't had a formal law change like you're proposing, um, dual standards, double standards are becoming gradually enshrined in law. So, um, for example, if... Because both- it's not... It's not like they're going to require men to sign a waiver. Uh, no, I suspect not. Um, but what what does change is, is say, the particularly assumptions around alcohol use. So if both a man and a woman have been drinking alcohol, um, both wake up the following morning, neither quite remembers how they got from drinking alcohol to waking up in bed next to each other. It's assumed, and this is now, you know, often has a legal precedent in the UK, that the woman was not able to consent. Therefore, this is rape, you know, because the the man obviously took advantage of the woman's inebriated state. And, and so you set a lower legal standard for women than you do for men. So the man, no matter how much he's had to drink, he is supposed to be, he is not supposed to have sex with a woman who's been drinking. And this is an, uh, a fantastically feminist idea. It's insulting. <laughs> it's incredibly insulting. Um, I mean, also, I think it actually, the reality, I think few people will say this, but the reality of what's going on here is the rehabilitation of the woman as passive in relation to sex. Sex is done to her rather than her being an active participant in it. Um, it also rehabilitates the idea that the woman's role is to be all kind of moral and pure and say no. Um, yes. Whereas the man can say yes, but also it is it must be so nice to be a young woman because you don't have to take any responsibility for your own sexuality or your needs or your darkest drives. This is absolutely it. I mean, I think you know what's bizarre about the consent thing is if you have these formal conversations and predetermine everything, so it takes all spontaneity or passion out of a relationship. But if you go through these formal processes, these formal conversations, um, you can consent to anything, you know, nothing's off limits, you you can consent to that. But um, what you can't consent to is to have have sex without consent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, you can't consent to that. You, <laughs> that, 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 that that's quite interesting, yes. The, you, the, the, just it, the whole thing rhetorically becomes you just can't do that. You, let's say you wake up together in bed, you're both not, you haven't been drinking, you're just, uh, you know, between sleep and Maybe you're horny and you start fondling each other and then one thing leads to another and you start having sex, then it's not really sex, is it? It's rape. (laughs) This this is how it can be seen now. So ultimately, a rape, I mean, the the whole reason why consent classes, so I was being a bit disingenuous earlier when I said that, um, you know, people don't need to be taught not to rape, because obviously consent classes are not really saying don't rape. What what they are doing is they are redefining the concept of rape. So rape becomes defined as unwanted, regretted 
sex, which I think is hugely problematic because it means that a woman can now look back on something that took place two, three, ten years ago and reconsider and think, well, did I really want to do that now I look back on it you know did he ask me well oh no he didn't therefore I must have been raped which you know is is uh, well yeah very causes a lot of problems I think when we start going down that line of thought yeah consent is not as straightforward as students are led to believe mm-hmm. page 149 <laughs> <laughs> yes I have um <laughs> And also, there was one thing that I thought was very interesting with your book, which was that uh, victim feminism, as you called it, it creates a sort of uh, opposite movement on the men's side. This yes. uh, men's yeah. rights activists, MRMs. Yes. Uh, I have huge problems with these so-called men as well, because I think men, should, men shouldn't complain at all. Uh, but I'm a traditional man in that sense. So, what, what, because you wrote... And I quote, no winners in this race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, what's so bad about the men's rights activists is it almost seems to me as if they look at the direction feminism's taking women in um, to be victims in society and think, well, how can we have a bit of that? You know, how can we get some of that victim status for ourselves? And they point, you know, and sometimes there is a bit of a basis for this. They'll point to particular problems that men experience and they'll say, you know, we have problems too custody death at work yeah uh, wars suicide is the one that's pointed to most often that the male suicide rate is higher than the female suicide rate and we don't do anything about this you know this is a, a problem that's not talked about I mean, statistically, if you, th- this is certainly true, you know, more men do commit suicide than women. Um, my understanding is that, uh, just as many men and women attempt suicide, but tragically, men are more successful, um, in committing suicide. Um, so it's, it's a hard conversation to have, but I just don't think, you know, men have got anything to gain whatsoever by having the victim label attached to them to you know i think even though we're lagging behind in school we've lost all place in society a man's purpose is not the same as it used to be just 50 years ago i mean don't they have ample reason to kill themselves oh well i mean that's a very dramatic and tragic way of looking at it you know and i i don't i I, I think that the, it is hard being a man today. Um, ironically, I think it's hardest uh, being a working class man or a man without qualifications at school because you're right to point to changes in the labour market. The jobs that have gone are the jobs for which you don't need any qualifications, manual labour, labouring. Um, those jobs with heavy industry are the jobs that have disappeared. And yet, ironically, it's not, tends not to be working class men who are spontaneously making men's rights groups that tends to be far more middle class journalists university students who are getting into the men's rights movement well they have time don't they they have the time on their hands (laughs) but also like i said it's this and the only way that people seem to be able to make sense politically nowadays is to fight for victim status this this kind of clamor for victimhood um and I think it, it becomes a zero-sum game. I mean, the, the point I'm, I'm making, the subtitle of my book, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars, is because what it it does then is it, it reinforces this idea that men and women have separate and competing interests, whereas I think some of the issues that, that do throw up challenges for all of us in society, to go back to what we were saying earlier, you know, how do we juggle careers and, and family life and childcare? You know, I think that's an issue for everyone. It's an issue as a society, we need to look at what do we think is important? What do we value? Um, but that issue is not best dealt with by pitching men and women against each other. So I say men and women have children together. You know, you, you need a man and a woman to produce a baby. You know, having produced these babies, how as a society, men and women together with interests in common, do we then move on from this position? Do we look at what's best for society? Not by saying, well, there are men's interests over there and women's interests over here. And, you know, how can we compete to see who's most deserving? 
Yeah, I get that feeling from reading your book that it's more uh, you you try to make the point that we're more complementary than adversary. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I just check my phone? I'm just no, a bit no, concerned. Uh, well, my daughter might phone. N- not me. at all. But I think your daughter. Uh, you, you were supposed to pick her up now, and yeah. I only have really one more question. Excellent. So yes, <laughs> actually, <laughs> sorry. actually, I have like four pages of <laughs> questions, but but I'll finish with this one. How has modern feminism affected you as a woman being a woman? Um, so do you mean in terms of the progress? Fourth wave. Fourth I mean wave intersectionality. Yeah. Or I could state the question this way. How does intersectionality make me as a Jewish, weed-smoking, psychoanalysis-going, comedian-loving man, a heterosexual one at that, <laughs> slightly hebophilic, how does it make me uh, more uh, full as a person? How does that help me in society to view myself as a tribal entity rather than an individual? I don't think it helps you at all. Um, I don't think it, it would help me at all to uh, see myself. I mean, I could attach all kinds of labels to myself if I wanted to. But I don't think I would have anything. I mean, I, I, you know, I could even have something to gain from that. I'm sure I could get a column in the Guardian uh, if I wanted to. I mean, I don't want to, but you'd have to start every column with as a female, exactly, yes, mother I mean, of three. Yeah, yes. definitely. I could definitely. former Marxist libertarian. <laughs> I'm just assuming now because you work for Spike. I could, <laughs> I could do that, you know, but, but why would I want to, you know, because I would be asking people essentially to judge every thought that I have in the context of who I've said I am. And I would rather that my um, thoughts were judged on their own merit um, and that people argued with me on the basis of what I say and what I think rather than who they assume I am. And people do assume all kinds of things. I mean, I've read, you know, as as you do, I've read all kinds of stuff. I try not to. All kinds of stuff that's been written about me where people make the most outrageous assumptions about who I must be. I mean, the word that's used most often is privileged. Well, brilliant. Hilarious. <laughs> I would love people to come around and actually <laughs> point out these areas of privilege that I am supposed to have. But, you know, I could, I could retaliate by pointing out all the disadvantages that I've faced over the course of my life. But what, again, you know, why would I want to do that? You know, it, it would serve no purpose for me whatsoever. It, because you would create yourself from your failings rather than your successes. Yeah, yeah, that. But also when you put that out there, people don't forget it. People judge you on that basis. So, you know, people, oh, well, you've done really well considering, <laughs> you know, considering who you are or considering what your childhood was like or something like that. And I don't want that would be to me, that would be a really horrible thing for someone to say. I want people just to say, this is a great book, not this is a great book or a great article considering or for our, or given that you are this type of person. That's just uh, a really patronizing, uh, demeaning. To me, that would be a really demeaning thought. So a big thing in UK academia at the moment is um, getting more women included on reading lists. So the University of Cambridge, for example, is suggesting that 40% of philosophy reading lists should be comprised of women writers. Now, I would- We have the same here. I think it's terrible because if I was a woman philosopher who had written a brilliant book, I would want to know that that book was there because it was brilliant, because it was considered a really top-notch philosophy book that deserved a place on the reading list. The undermining assumption that you might be on that reading list simply because you're female, not because you'd written a brilliant book or you'd written an okay book, but, you know, gets the extra push because you're female is just appalling and i think i hope it's something that in the future people will look back on with horror that this was allowed to happen i long for that world as well and i want to thank you for coming by thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. You've heard me, Aron Flam, ask Dr. Joanna Williams about her book, Women vs. Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. I hope you enjoyed the talk. 
If you want to support this podcast, you can always find me under my name, Aaron Flam, that's Aaron with one A, Flam with one M, on Patreon, www.patreon.com, where you can donate as much or as little as you want to. I only extract money, or money is only extracted from your account when I actually publish something. You can also, if you live in Sweden, swish me at 0768943737. 0768943737. Until next time, have a good unit of time. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.